And after four and a half years, I'm back for another episode of Banter Radio. I got married in August to the love of my life, who is now known as Ava Sherwin. And instead of having a bachelor's party, I went camping in Cuyamaca State Park, about 50 minutes east of San Diego, with three of my groomsmen, Naveed Zamani, my colleague Tom, who decided to only use his first name for this episode, and Mike Giancola. I asked each of them to bring two narrative therapy questions they've used in their clinical practice, and we recorded our discussion about those eight questions together for this episode. Enjoy. Um, maybe we could go around and say the names, where you're from, something about your practice. So I'm Will Sherwin, based out in Irvine. I'm in private practice in telehealth all throughout California. I'm uh, Navid Zamani. I'm based out of San Diego, and I work at License to Freedom, which is a nonprofit working with Middle Easterners, uh, families who are experiencing domestic violence. I'm Tom. I'm from San Diego, and I love to live in San Diego. But I really feel so grateful to do the work that I do. It's really just an honor to, to sit and be with people for the for the time we get. Hello, I'm Mike Giancola. I, I too live in San Diego, work in private practice, very interested in conversations about how people think about sexual health, sexuality, and also working with men specifically around when they feel like their sexual behavior has gotten out of control. And I'm honored to have those conversations and also very interested in connections to more than human world, the ecology of sexuality. I'm very interested in conversations about this as they progress. Well, thank you guys. Uh, I'll go first to the first question. Uh, this I got from an online course that Dulwich Center put out um, called Reclaiming Lies from Abuse. It's a question from Michael White. Uh, if, you, if you'd had yourself for a parent, what difference would this have made to your life? I thought it was an interesting question. And uh, made me think and imagine, and I've asked it to some clients, I think with some good effect, especially clients who uh, dealt with abuse in their uh, family growing up and made some commitments to treat other people in different ways uh, were important to them, and they talked about ways that they wouldn't uh, punish their own children for uh, harshly for mistakes, uh, ways that they would um, have learned to you know, not feel ashamed of themselves for uh, big feelings they were having. And um, I thought it was an interesting question. You know, it, it takes people to kind of this imaginative place. Um, if you'd had yourself for a parent, what difference would this have made to your life? And Michael White says a little bit about, about this question. So, questions of this sort are generally effective in challenging the negative truths of identity that people get recruited into through the experiences of abuse. One sense of identity is very significantly determined by one's experience of other people's experiences of who one is. And since one's parents are primary in this, so often it is parents who abuse who wind up having the last say about who one is and about how one relates to oneself. 
Questions of the sort that I've outlined here undermine the authority of parents who abuse, who are mostly men, and open up possibilities for women and men to revise their relationship with their self. So I'm going to try to open up to you three and see if you have anything to say about that question. This is Mike Giancola. I just want to open up a question to the group. I'm interested in Michael White's writing. When he talks about questions that would have the effect of undermining authority of those who often have the last word about a discussion, whether it's about something harmful that's happened recently or maybe something that's happened perhaps a generation ago or more, and then the conversation revisits it. So I, I really appreciate so much of his writing, but but the way he's talking about this here, I'm just curious if you guys have ideas about this in this question or other questions that somehow undermine this authority to make space for people's voices or other understandings of their identity other than um, ones that, that harm have created? Yeah, well, I, I remember you sharing that question with me outside of this podcast, and I really love the question. And I'm kind of wondering about, uh, in terms of asking it, what kind of the results have been for you? Does it open up a whole new new place to go? You know, it's it's a question that I'm discerning about who I ask. But there's been a few people I, I really, a big part of life is taking some kind of ethical stance that has been informed by the abuse they were affected by. And... But those people who really take this sort of broad ethical stance about how they treat others, there's been times that questions felt really helpful to kind of be honoring of that stance and to imagine, you know, I get a sense that they're really um, in their relationships uh, trying to take some ethical stances around not, you know, rejecting people when they get angry, uh, not cutting off ties with people, um, not speaking critically or demeaning when someone makes a mistake in relationships, but still have this kind of what they describe as like an inner critic, or it's hard to do that for themselves. For those people, I've seen them really like, you know, look up in the meeting and think about it and imagine if they had had that for themselves, um, how they might be, have some freedom from some of this what they would call inner critics, so harshly condemning them when they make a mistake or when they get messy in life. Um, and I think it's been kind of a, a touching question, a question that brings in sort of creativity and imagination um, rather than just try to be kind to yourself kind of stuff. It's sort of simplistic and not always so imaginative. And... Um, so that's some of when it's been, it's felt like some shining moments with, the, with a few people like that. But again, it's not something I would use with everyone. Thanks for the question. I feel like it's important to state the setting we're in too, right? We're like sitting under these trees in the, what would you call these, uh, low mountains in East San Diego. It's pretty hot. Well, it's getting hotter, but it's very nice under the shade. So I just want to say that my, <laughs> I feel like my answer is going to be shaped by that setting. I didn't even know how I would answer that question for myself because growing up, I was highly critical of my parents. My parents were immigrants and I was being raised in American culture. 
and so American culture was giving me a lot to critique. And also, I was afforded the opportunity by my parents critiquing American culture through their, not overtly or explicitly, but just the ways that they'd invite me to assume or uh, reassess what I think should happen. I mean, like, the more playful version of that is, like, high school graduation and my friends were having graduation parties and I remember asking my uh I don't remember if it was my mom or dad but asking one of them like I'm graduating do I get a graduation party and they laughed and they're like no you just did the lowest like you did what you're supposed to do which is graduate high school which reflected their like strong strong value system around education which is very Persian as I've understood a very Persian stance so there's like certain things as like as I'm a parent I have a daughter her name is Layla she's th- gonna be four in a month from the time of this recording interestingly I'm trying to figure out how to like emulate what my parents did but I can't in a lot of ways like it's really important to me that Layla speaks Farsi but like I'm the only one that can do it. I learned Farsi because I was watching my parents talk, speak it to each other all the time. And my wife is not a Farsi speaker or she's, you know, learning, but not a native or fluent Farsi speaker necessarily. So my practice to get Layla to learn Farsi is so different. It feels a lot more, I have to be a lot more intentional and I try really hard. So I don't know, there's certain things that I feel like my parents did really well that they weren't trying to do, at least from my, you know, generational perspective and then there's there's ways that like I have access to multiple cultures in a way that they didn't I don't think that gives me some more uh, wider platter of options to choose from when I'm thinking about being a parent I think so I don't know I, I, I guess all that to say I don't know like there's some pretty rigid stances they took from me that I'm like surprised that are starting to emerge in my own practices Navid I was interested because the question is about if you had yourself as a parent and you talked about a wider platter of options that you have available to you and I'm just curious if you can say a little more about that and how that informs the identity of you parenting you or you parenting it's a good question I just so much of who I am is shaped by being raised by immigrant parents so it's hard to imagine how I would parent myself like, I don't know who myself is that I'm parenting because I'm not, I don't identify as an immigrant. So I don't know what I would be doing <laughs> to myself, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, the wider buffet or whatever platter of options is like having access to my in-laws who I get to witness a very different parenting style. It's there. I would say it's more, it's American, but it's beautiful in its own way getting to be in Iran for months out of the year growing up and watching my aunts and uncles parent and watching my going to my friends houses and watching their parents parent here in the US so I I feel like I got to see so many different ways to do it if that makes sense and one thing for me that really I really appreciate growing up that was really helpful is my I never saw my parents drink or do anything which no judgment on drinking or whatever but like it's just so culturally normal in the US to drink like it's every part of life your birth death celebrations sadness it's like woven in to every 
crevice of Amer- as I understand American culture. And so growing up with parents who like never drank and the minute music came on they'd start dancing. You don't need to be like drunk and around a bunch of drunk people to dance. I was like cool like okay there's an- another way of being with substances that isn't like non-consensual in some ways. And I want to do that for my daughter but it I have to take a much firmer stance. It doesn't feel like doing something naturally, if that makes sense. I felt like my parents just kind of, I feel stupid saying this because I don't think it's the case. It's a story as their, their kid that I'm with, that they were doing stuff more easily and just what felt right. And I feel like I'm like grinding to figure out what's right. I don't know if that answers your question, by the way. It, it does, and, and I very much identify with that, and I'm thinking about something. I was wanting to bring up Ron Estes and some of his ideas and impact on me. Ron has talked to me about focal distance, and sometimes when we can see our experience, um, when we're so close to something, like parenting, that it's hard to step back and see and know what we're doing. Like, we can know what we do, but do we know what we do does? kind of thinking about those ideas and and getting some distance from it so I'm wondering what your folks would say about the statement you just made when they were when they were in the thick of doing what you're doing now it'd probably be irritated because I was and have been highly critical well not like highly critical but I'm open with my critiques Um, especially in my teen years me and my dad got into it a lot as I'm sure many people do so I think they'd be surprised to hear that there's a wonder and fascination adoration i have for their parenting can we stay with this just for another minute is that okay you guys because there's another conversation navid and i have had that um i'm sort of fascinated by from a um sort of built environment and ecological perspective the way we're building communities and making longer and longer roads to build houses that are bigger and bigger that are further and further away from places need to be and Navid and I were in Orange County recently to see you play Will and uh, as that was getting set up Navid and I had a chance just to have some one-on-one time before we go to watch you play music and um, we pieced this together our parents in a lot of ways couldn't be more different. Um, my mother is the daughter of Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants. My father is the grandchild of Italian Roman Catholic immigrants. And yet some of their preferences and consumption and the way, and it's interesting, my parents were, are not drinkers. They, they, they did a lot that you could say was not in accordance with some norms about like, oh, let's go out and get a drink or let's like they, you know, and they also, we pieced together some of the distances that they lived from big cities like um, Orange County vis-a-vis Los Angeles and Nassau County vis-a-vis New York City. And they found these pockets of culture that were largely built around people working, living, and consuming in certain ways around a large city um, that had yards, that had certain schools, that had certain like norms that people would look for, even if they were very, very different, they would all find these sort of suburbs that gravitated around large cities, like as if that was the, if I'm recalling our conversation, that was like the measure of of doing well and making it, not looking at some of the other potential effects of setting up homes, commutes, transport, distance between neighbors, um, the way resources are allocated in those communities, any number of different, you know, human resources or actual physical resources. And 
I'm thinking this story doesn't exist just between our families. I'm thinking this is something that um, people in different generations come to the modern West and assimilate that way. Um, and I'm just thinking about that as... I'm thinking what Michael would say about this conversation too, because I'm wondering if Michael's talking about some of the intimate interactions of parenting, but I think also parenting has to do with like what with the limited resources we have and the limited time we have, where might we settle? And what might that mean about the choices that we make in our lives? And I was just interested anyway, Navid, that we pieced together some very different cultural backgrounds and temporal backgrounds about immigration and culture and different things, yet some really similar pathways to find a preference to where our families wanted to settle down. And um, I don't know, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in these journeys for people and the choices that they make. And I don't know, is there anything else that you want to say about that? Yeah, yeah I'll just add this piece. I'm curious what these other guys are thinking too, or uh, reflections they have. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thread in there for me is the ways that like inward discourses are exported through imperialism so like the preference for suburbia during that like city planning era of the 50s and 60s uh, my dad worked for an American company in Tehran in Iran um, prior to the revolution and they had these like little neighborhoods called like little little America and it was literally like the white picket fence they just created like a little community of suburbia to show like the brilliance of the United States and so like my dad would see these and they'd sometimes go in and visit them and I was like that's success so yeah so when he came out here like um we moved to suburbia um so I, I it is kind of fun to imagine the ways that like our parents were kind of under similar discourses and had similar trajectories laid out for them by various American stakeholders <laughs> and that's how that's kind of like created a parallel in our experience and I would just say something like somehow that's parenting too and I'm trying to figure out exactly how given that these are decisions that maybe don't happen on a like you don't change houses every day or every week you don't change neighborhoods that frequently they're they're consequential decisions that have people settle I imagine a certain culture certain politics um so I, I i'm i'm really interested and just thinking about ideas of a sixth grade extinction and if if we're in the throes of that um or we are in the throes of that what does it mean about the way we're building on our planet if it's no longer about a cultural choice for a certain aesthetic a certain way of life but it's also about our relationship with the larger planet around us that that we're, we're building all this with and on so I'm, I'm, I'm present with that idea too if I could just make a final comment here too because you're talking about the resources that were given and then what's parenting is like emerging within some limited resources which is kind of how I understand creativity it's like I don't remember who said it so forgive me for not knowing who to attribute it to but you need parameters for creativity and yeah it's kind of like parenting is such a creative act except that at the end the paint the piece gets to argue about how you painted it or I guess or like make a comment on what you did <laughs> um, so I guess there's a way I've, as I've gotten older I've been able and I have my own kid really I can acknowledge the creativity my parents were in and being grateful for the painting knowing that you know it was their first 
time they drew something and it was me and I get to argue with it want to say one last I want to say one last thing to this sorry we're, we're getting into a dialogue and we're we're, we're bump we're keeping these others up um I, I just want to say um one last thing to that which is just uh, um some gratitude around time that um to do everything you just mentioned it takes time so I'm grateful for um something about time that I'm super super grateful for regardless of context maybe parents maybe biological parents but just adults writ large make time for next generations to um be an activity together in some respectful and caring ways. So, sorry. Thank you guys. I just want to say, Will, see how open and awesome your question, what it created. That's That was my point in the beginning. So, well, Thank you, guys. So the, the question, again, was if you'd had yourself for a parent, what difference would this have made to your life? You know, I also like about this question, it's not like how would your life have been better it's what difference would this have made? And that, again, comes from the online course you can find at Dulwich Center's website, Reclaiming Lives from Abuse. Would you be up for going next? Yeah, I don't know which one to throw out first, honestly. But uh, I, I feel like I tinker all the time. Like I know Bill Madsen uses this word. We kind of use discipline improv when we when we work with people or when we're in connection with people, I guess, is the best way to put it. But sometimes p- people come to me and they're mandated to come to me, whether their their partner or spouse wants them to come or they're a young person and their parents say, oh, come on, sit down. So creating dialogue takes something. And so I, I try to connect to these places that are like big kind of open spaces, but aren't too far out to for people. But sometimes I might ask uh, a believing question and I feel like that that has opened up some doors. And so I might ask something about like, can you tell me a time where someone's believed in you? It seems to be available for people, whether it's like a coach or a teacher. or, And it really brings in this open, rich discussion about times where someone's felt connected to someone else. And then it kind of can turn into how they've created that for someone else, too. Like, it, it kind of just really evolves. Don't have to say much. They can sometimes just say a person's name too, and so much can travel from there. So, I just kind of call it the believing question. It really is like either a person or an event that kind of creates some reflection that then goes into other other areas. It makes me think of uh, a book I was reading by Pat Patterson about songwriting. He talked about how verbs are very powerful in songs. So he's like, pay attention to your verbs and believe, you know, who believed in you. You know, that, that verb believing, um, it's kind of evocative. You know, it, it doesn't need to be answered like technically, what does it mean to believe in someone? But it's evocative of someone who believed in you. I think it takes me to, you know, specific people, you know, right away and kind of how it's, it's an evocative verb. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, uh, 
Does it come easily for people to share someone who believed in them? You know, I think sometimes it does. Sometimes it's really available and sometimes it's not. Sometimes I, I have to kind of transition to a person. Um, I kind of wait a little bit to ask it. It's not one of my first questions I, I throw out to people, but it's kind of, it's one where we kind of get eventually warmed up and it, I'll take a risk and, and try it. But because um, I know that there are people that might come to us and where that's really not available. And that question could, could kind of go in a different direction and cause kind of something different. So it's kind of um, handle with care question in a way. Uh, it's not one I would throw out, but it's one where if the moment is right, if there is such a thing, and you feel like the person has that available to them or they've, they've hinted on, on times where they felt believed in, um, I think then it's a good time to, to kind of bring it forward. But boy, like it really like opens the door to how they want to be treated sometimes. It opens the door to maybe relationships they want to have in the future. I remember a, training with David Epstein and he was asking somebody these initial questions um, and someone asked him what, what's guiding you in, in these you know, first meetings with somebody and he said I'm trying to find a, a relationship like a preferred relationship to, to ask a lot about but that's like his jumping off point is trying to find a preferred relationship Tom thanks for this question and as I imagine being asked this question it lit some things up for me that I wanted to share I could think of people that believed in me, but then I also thought from like a reauthoring perspective, I hadn't thought about a lot of the activity of being believed in, like things that I saw in their face or in their tone or things that they'd done. So I'm just thinking about in some of the ways that we might talk about reauthoring in narrative therapy, like from an identity perspective, when you ask the question, I was like, oh, yeah, there are some people that have really believed in me. I'm really grateful for them. But then I thought, how? Like, how'd they do that? And then some other memories came in that I had never thought about until you mentioned that question right now. And I could, there's time, like I get it. I, I'll stop there and just say like, I could imagine that being really rich and I'm curious if it's really rich when people get into some of the so-called landscape of action or some of the finer memories of people believing in them. Yeah, I, I think that that's where it gets like fun. The methodology of someone believing in you, the verb or the action of it we can get in these like spaces of time that become really, really kind of adventurous terrain, I guess, in a way. How do you, how do you know that they were believing in you is like a question that sometimes comes on the back end of that. And then the, those answers are really like fun. You know, they, <laughs> I do like it, when someone wants to kind of go down this road with us, then kind of turning it into them believing in someone else too and how that's influenced them in ways of relating. The thing that came to my mind um, on reflecting on the question of 
as I understand it, like what's been a useful or helpful or a question that's maybe part of my practice. <clears throat> this one was kind of forged in the uh, the oven of a contentious relationship, which are sometimes some of my better questions come out of, <laughs> for better or for worse. I um, yeah, and I'll, and I'll preface this by saying that like I really believe that the work of therapy is philosophical um and i think the influence of a professional field and the psychologizing of experience that strips kind of like the richness and politics kind of renders out the philosophical aspects of our work um but this question actually was asked to me by a client who um going to obscure details but farsi speaking family we were working with the whole family and the family during the course of their time with us moved from, I'll say highly conflictual to that conflict being named as abuse by various folks in different ways towards a separated to divorced to household family. And the challenge that we have at License to Freedom or I, I guess folks in domestic violence is people kind of find us in their relationships at the worst points of their relationships. And in this particular context, we were named as the cause of the divorce, which I disagree with, but I can also understand the frustration which that narrative was crafted through. That being said, with this, with the, the father and his family, there was this question of like asking me, what, what is family? Like, what does family mean to you? Which is such an important question as a family therapist for a client to ask me, right? Like, how do you make sense of family and what do you think is possible? Because then embedded in that question are questions of like, what are my determinations of conflict and abuse? When do I think people should be together or not? What is a healthy arrangement for kids? This family, like I said, they're Farsi-speaking, so they come from Farsi-speaking country. And the idea of, like, what, which feels like a common tale. I have friends like this who have divorced parents, and the parents are amicable, and they come to weddings together and hang out. You know, maybe they're not hanging out all the time, but friendly is, like, an extremely foreign concept. And so sometimes, like, they would feel that in our work, where it's like, well, there could be, you could be healthily apart. And in his mind, that's not family. Now, you know, there's a lot of ways, I'm sure, y'all and people listening are, like, crafting or maybe making sense of how the definition of family is located within particular power structures, right? Around patriarchy, monogamy, heterosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. But I just felt like that question was so important to me. And it was such an important form of accountability. So there's a way that I'm trying trying to encourage that question with our team of therapists in like my supervision context, but also with my clients myself. Like, how are we both making sense of family? What are what are its implications? What should a trajectory of family be? What's possible for family when those trajectories aren't lived? Um, yeah, I'll stop there. So the question is, what is family and what does family mean to you? Yes. And then like, what's the intersection between our definitions that could make our work useful or possible? Yeah, I'm not, 
uh, I felt something with that question, you know, and um, I don't know what my answer would be either. But I remember, so before I was into narrative, I was actually in a Lacanian psychoanalytic group for like nine months, and we did mostly dream work. And I remember one of the things they said was, a family is a group of people with a common project. That, that's the definition I use, but it was interesting to have like a, this construct of what a family is and a common project. It was sort of interesting phrase for me. Because um, I have been in groups of people where there was this sort of sense we're all working together on something, and it, it felt you know, very powerful, like what I could see calling that like family or something, and how the difference is from, you know, does your family you're born into have a common project? And if so, what is, what is that exactly? It was an interesting phrase just to be bouncing around in my head, you know. I also know some people who the idea of like a chosen family was like a really helpful thing to think about. The family where they're the family they were born into, you know, yeah, it felt like it was very conflictual or a lot of abuse going on and, and really wanted distance from that. And the idea of a chosen family that they were building over time, you know, it was meaningful just to honor it as family, you know, the group of people they chose to be with. I just want to thank, I suppose, Navi, this client, for asking you this. Um, if I understood something about the context, it was a bit of a fraught context, yeah? Very. I'm just looking at your face. This isn't a video. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm just appreciating the context w within which questions are generated. I think, as you're saying, like some of the political of the... May, of our, our discipline, of even the formation of these questions. Because as I'm thinking about it as such, like I'm thinking about it as a potentially really liberating question. And I also don't know if it was asked with that intent by the person that asked it. So I'm curious if you could say a little more about that. I think this client would be surprised to hear me mentioning this question this way because it was fraught. It was in a moment of deep frustration he had with us and our team. Basically, the question was asked during a period where his partner was leaving the relationship and had to go to the shelter and ways that our team was working with him and also supporting her in making those moves. And so her his question was like, I can't get a sense of what you're committed to. Like you say you're family therapist, but you're encouraging my family to split. And yeah, I, I experienced the question as a really critical form of accountability that he was inviting me into. Like speak to how you're thinking about your work and the influence it's having on my family. Because the, the type of power I'm interested in having with families is only as far as my influence extends ultimately. And in the DV world, I have a lot of other tools. You know, there's CPS crawling everywhere. There's law enforcement everywhere. Um, there's tons of systems and ways that I could be in other forms of power that extend beyond just a dialogic influence or experiential one. So, I don't know, I was able to let him know that, like, I in my own life, family, there's a part of family that's <laughs> there's a certain level of suffering involved where it's like, 
you're just like forced in contact with some people that make your life harder sometimes. <laughs> um, but also you're in contact with those people because there's like such a long history with them. And there's like, there's things around bloodline that I'm always trying to be in resistance to my Persian history and culture, like crafts of very strong border around. So it's hard to penetrate sometimes for me as much as I want to, but consent is a part of family for me. Like, and in my mind, once consent is trespass, and again, there's a spectrum here in varying degrees and consent is named by the parties involved. But once that consent is trespass, like that feels more important to me than some notion of family, if that makes sense. And I think it was helpful for us in our conversation that that distinction was made clear because I think he had a different definition about that. Especially as an immigrant man who came to the U.S. and all the power structures he was familiar with completely changed, for better, for worse. And him being in the middle of that change couldn't see the better, which I understood because he was finding himself isolated. So anyways, I could go on about that, but I don't know if that answers your question. I want you to go on about that. Were you speaking with him in Farsi? If you remember, could you say in Farsi and then in English what you said to him to let him know that your belief about family also included consent and that once that that was crossed, the relationship or the meaning of family might be remarkably changed? I'm sorry, I'm loosely paraphrasing what you just said. Can you remember what you said to him? I can't remember the word-for-word details, of course, but I know a really present concept in that is this idea in Farsi there's this word like vasife like vasifeme which this is my understanding of it of the definition it's kind of like this intersection of a selfless suffering that you do for someone else it's like the responsibility that's embedded in your role right like when my daughter was like one or less and little and me and my wife were just struggling and trying to keep our heads above water and I'm looking at Tom because he's going to be in this zone in like a couple months <laughs> my mom would drive down from Orange County like on a moment's notice to be with us and I remember like my wife would just be like oh my god thank you so much like you really don't have to do that I can't believe that you would do something like that for us it's an hour it was an hour drive a little over an hour so it's you know something really generous she's doing and her response was always no that's your family I mean like I'm her grandma. Like, it's my role, my responsibility. Like, it is a suffering, but it's like one I'm happy to partake in. It's like a, less of a negative suffering, I guess. I, I, I look at it in kind of like this Islamic history. And I think that word was becoming a central piece of our conversation, was like his role and responsibility as a father and then vice versa to his, like, authority and power. And I had a different sense about that. I was kind of sharing with him that, like, what happens when you're trying to protect people from people like yourself? Right? Like his whole thing was like, there's like wolves in the community. They're going to, they won't be okay by themselves. I'm like, well, what if you're the wolf? And like, it was a hard conversation. Um, Cause he'd perpetrated some things that put the family in fear to, to the point where they had to leave in the way they did. So I don't know, like he was, he was practicing what he was supposed to do. But what he was supposed to do 
was housed in some really problematic approaches and the ethics I understood, but the practices were problematic in my opinion. And I, <clears throat> the question gave me the opportunity to say that directly to him. Like that was my opinion and perspective. I don't know. It's a tough thing. And I say it too. And like this, it's a challenge I have sometimes with my trainees or maybe students that are like learning narrative of like, the decentered but influential stance being understood as like I can't have a stance, I guess. And I'm kind of of, the, of a different mindset. I'm like I'm not gonna force you to understand my way, but I'm gonna let you know where I stand on particular issues. And I'm interested in you moving me, like that's my decentered stance. But like, there's some things that are it's gonna take a lot of convincing <laughs> to get me away from. Yeah, I, I was gonna say like when you when you teach do you do you share this story is is this one that you share and like how does someone like put it into practice this idea of family how do you, how do you bring it forward a little bit in like a practical view like in a training or like yeah. with clients with the training yeah in the training i think i mean this is nothing original like there's like a really critical reflexivity that's involved in considering like we're doing our family orientations I mean I think we've all grown up in very different families and that shapes how we assume families are structured and are and that plays out in our questions so prominently I mean to your thing about what Epson was saying about like where do you start or how are you thinking about this like yeah there's these theoretical elements but those theoretical elements and then the questioning in my, the force of the theory is an ethical drive, if that makes any sense. Like that's like the substrate. And so then you're playing out some ethical assumptions through a theoretical languaging. And so then the questions are going in a particular direction. And it's just really, it's really obvious to see in institutions. And then you start to see it playing out in people, right? Like, CPS want people to split apart. And so then, like, when I'm working with an Afghan mom who was married at 14 uh, through a particular practice, and she's married to her cousin, and CPS is saying she needs to divorce her f husband. Uh, I'm not, this is like, I'm quoting this, right? She needs to divorce her husband, and I need you to help her understand how to make better choices in her future partners they're missing an entire cultural picture like the whole question they're asking is a thousand percent outside of anything that's even possible to talk about she didn't choose shit and it's her cousin you can't it's not like a divorce where it's like later and also all their families in afghanistan so no restraining order matters it's like there's not an international restraining order you can like do and then when you have various when you have like the taliban also supporting the threats of one partner and are holding various family members hostage like the politics aren't as like simple as like just divorce and move on so that's where i'm interested in being decentered i guess where i'm kind of centering politics i suppose or at least of understanding of the politics but like with the students to go back to your question tom i'm sorry i'm like we're veering off it's like really encouraging them to like look at themselves look at the political scape landscape that they're in and then like what they may or not be inadvertently driving people towards and for what reason.
with this first question, this is Mike Giancola with this first question. I want to say that something, Navid, that you just said is helping me to frame this a bit. And I want to make sure I've got it right. I think you said something like the ethics are the force behind the worker that informs the work. Yeah? Yeah, that, that, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and it's helpful because the question is one of identity. Um, and it, it's, it's, I guess, simply, can you tell me about your erotic self? And some context, very often when people consult with me, it's male identifying people who consider themselves in highly problematic sexual behaviors, they will often call themselves sex addicts, which is also a contested term in the field that I work in. And I just want to go with their language and how they're thinking about problems. And um, we'll often talk about some of the problems they're going through when we initially talk. Um, and if I ask them a bit, usually around the end of the time, maybe during our first hour or second hour together about can you tell me a bit about your erotic self? They will often look at me like a little blankly, like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Like I, I'm here to fix something. Like there's, there's something wrong here. What difference does my erotic self, if I even know what that is, make to the work we're going to do? Cause I'm just here to stop something. Like I just need to stop what I'm doing, whatever sort of behavior that might be. Most often the context that I'm in, it's men that are in relationship to, to the internet, uh, in their home, in their workplace, looking at sexually explicit material, men that are in relationships that are outside of their relationship agreement and are breaking, exploiting their relationship agreements, and their partners aren't aware of it. Or some partners are aware of it, and now they're coming to work with me as a consequence. So this question, can you tell me a bit about your erotic self, is sort of like might feel like a hundred thousand miles away from that and so Navid when you say something like the ethics are the force behind the work um, some of my ethics in this are that every person has sexual imaginings every person has sexual fantasies every person has desires that are informed by their sexual imaginings and fantasies and very often through different societal forces giving voice giving story to those is is often taboo or forbidden to be able to speak to those in a way that speaks to what we might find erotic and and i include this word because often not always but often what we encounter as erotic in our experience may not fit with some of the ways we identify in our public lives even in our familial lives, it's a very private space that might just exist between us and a partner, or if it exists between us and other people, like a, a real need to check out the ethics and the safety of that, um, or even with a partner, given the amount of um, non-consensual activity that there is within partnerships. So, yeah, maybe I'll slow down there and just say, this feels like an important question to me because I'm suspicious of the amount of space that we give ourselves and that we give one another to story out some of the most sacred, influential, sometimes risque, sometimes shame-inducing, like, I really like this, but I don't know if I'd want anybody else to know this, feelings about what we fantasize about and what we desire. And very often asking this question has led to conversations of, at very least, people being able to story something that 
hitherto has been maybe expressed in actions or certain ways of talking or certain ways of acting, but hasn't actually been made explicit as part of who they are and where they stand about that from a, a sort of erotic, sexual, relational perspective. Can you tell me about your erotic self? Did I have that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm curious about how long this question has been with you, and I wonder how it, if it's evolved from some other questions. Because it strikes me as like you know this initial question exploring this direction of inquiry uh, around eroticism, sexuality. Um, you know, it's different than asking. You know, what's your sexual orientation? It's much broader, I think. Can you tell me about your erotic self? And yeah, how long has this way of phrasing it been with you? And did you did it evolve from something else when you were initially starting to ask people about uh, their erotic selves, their sexuality? There's probably a really long answer to this, but the shorter answer is it's been evolving through relationships to a mentor of mine, Doug Braun Harvey, who talks about sexual health conversations based on six principles, um, consent, non-exploitation, honesty, protection from HIV, STI, and unwanted pregnancy, shared values, and mutual pleasure. And it's the last principle of mutual pleasure that I think Doug has over the years engaged me and many, many others about how we have pleasure-focused conversations, um, how we actually ask people with their consent to understand what brings them pleasure and what brings the people they're engaged with pleasure. And I think from there, Doug is asked about things like erotic experience, peak erotic experience, and I think it's evolved to, for me, something about sort of an, an erotic self or, or an erotic identity um, line of questioning. Um, but I, I'm really appreciative, uh, going back to these six principles, they're really dear to me, they're really important to me, and Doug's teaching about them because um, there's such a diversity in what people imagine and fantasize about and then actually do sexually that when I think about those principles, it, it gives me a place to start from to ask people where they position themselves with respect to consent. I mean, Navid was just talking about that with a family. I'm talking about it now in terms of um, um, intimate and sexual relations. But it, it gives me a place to start to frame some questions. And some of those are about pleasure, even when a client might go like, wait, what's pleasure got to do with this? But, but I think having an understanding of what brings pleasure so that it can be dialogue with a partner and then people ultimately can be seen by a partner or person that they're intimate with could be different from just the doing of some activities without an understanding of why that's dear to a person, why they enjoy doing some of those things. Thanks for giving that like background to... To, and, and your mentor who's been influential. I'm kind of curious, is this like a question you find yourself asking in a first session? Kind of like what I was saying before. I know some, sometimes like these questions are just one question, but I think how we or where and when we position them make a difference. But do you have a spot for that question, I guess, a particular time that you that you might use that question? No, and I, I do want to 
create some kind of context or space to ask it sooner than later to let the client know that I'm interested in in their pleasure and not just the problem. Like I think others have examples of this in their practices. Like I think of a couple dear colleagues that do work with couples where they won't even start with the problem story until like the second session. They want to know something. They want to get on board with some things that are positive in their lives first. Not to say that an erotic self is always going to be a preferred self. Sometimes it can carry a lot of weight with it or some fraughtness with it. But I at least want to let them know that I'm interested in the things that bring them pleasure in some ways other than to pathologize their pleasure. Um, and I want to be careful with a caveat, which is if that pleasure is non-consensual in nature, like forced sex or sex with minors, then I completely believe it's a different conversation that then has to be managed clinically differently. I'm not going to get into all of that here, but I, I want to be clear that this is not a pathway for me to somehow find a rationale for people to be behaving and actually imposing non-consensual sexual behavior on minors or partners, etc. So. Okay, here's a poorly, it's a half thought. Are there ways in which you're asking that question or situating it that makes visible kind of like the cultural constraints or maybe the cultural values that swirl around it? For example, like certain cultures, and I would say, okay, my own anecdotal experience, American culture privileges pleasure a lot more than some other cultures where pr pleasure isn't important. I'm making some assumptions because this isn't necessarily like the work that I do like you do. The, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about the intersection of like American culture and what it says you sh your relationship to pleasure should be like, the identity constructions that might come in your relationship to your, sec your intimate self or erotic self, sorry, and how your questions kind of negotiate the usefulness of some of that cultural or like the discursive like framework it's in i i think i i understand you to be asking um when there are and let me see if i am when there are messages about pleasure and or eroticism that might not feel so um accessible in dialogue in conception in people's imaginations in in just being able to dialogue out how how does that inform how I ask the question when I ask the question or if I ask the question I think so I mean I think maybe to be just more crass and straightforward is there a way that the question could reinforce and and if it does how are you thinking about or negotiating it where reinforcing this idea that you deserve pleasure if that makes sense, rather than maybe some other cultural consideration that maybe your pleasure is not important, yeah. and we just think about that. And again, I the cu the cultural context that I'm drawing off there has its own problems yeah. in that world too. So I'm not saying it's the better approach. But. Yeah, that that's a great question. I'm just gonna have to sit with, especially with this idea of like, what are my ethics in this work? If if ethics are the you know force behind the work. Because I think part, I, I do think within bounds of consent and not exploiting other people, I believe that sexual pleasure is a fundamental human right. I, I believe that. And I'm definitely considering, Navid, how you're posing this, um, because I think there's a great amount of importance if a cishet white, cis male 
identifying therapist is saying this, asking this question if there's already like a connotation in the air about where people may go. So, so yeah, there, there, there's something there that I, around identity that I think I, I'm needing to consider and maybe backing up a bit. Um, and at the same time, from a perspective of human ex- lived experience and human experience, I imagine everyone has stories that inform the desire they have. And I'd like to find ways to, even if it's not with me, find ways to create the context that those stories can be better told in this, in the spirit of this erotic self way, even if it's not being asked that way. Um, because I don't know that those stories always get to be told. And I hold some belief that when they are, there can be something that people feel a little less encumbered, a little, a little less, um, like what they find enjoyable or exciting or um, pleasurable is um, is wrong or or somehow you know um, circumscribed by like a you know code of silence or a code of I, I I shouldn't have thought this or I shouldn't shouldn't do this or shouldn't want this I I, I do I do want to create a context where that's possible for people to speak or in a spirit of consent where they can say, can think of it, but it's not something I want to say here, not with you as a male, or it's just not something I want to talk about, but I appreciate the question. Um, so making sure that that's a possibility. So my second question, uh, I heard from Marcian Rivas, who told me about a paper, her friend and colleague, Luke Quinn, up in near the Seattle area, wrote for his uh, master's program in social work, uh, and it's, what would love do? And um, I've asked that recently to someone who was really in a lot of pain and distress around the climate crisis, really caught between ignoring it on one hand and, and, you know, obsessively thinking about it in all aspects. And um, I think the question helped him express uh, a lot of pain openly, um, which was something difficult for him to do, to kind of feel into the pain and express it. And it helped him kind of release into some tears uh, in a way that other questions weren't. I think it gave him some you know, release and openness. I love the simplicity of it, what we love to do. People really want love to be at the center of their life and decisions. Um, and Luke Quinn makes the point in his paper that love sometimes isn't talked about, you know, and the decision-making in, in social work and other helping fields so much. There's some politics and some wariness about loving clients and um, asking about love. So uh, I like that question. I feel like it's pretty versatile. Uh, what would love do? I just want to speak to the effects of this question being asked right now. Well, I'm not even sure how to speak it, but I just want to speak to some of the effects. When I think about any dilemma, and I think I, I often face something similar to what you're describing with this client of a sense of angst and a sense of hopelessness um, up against what feels like some pretty long odds 
I find myself wishing the words of Vince Scully in a season of the improbable, the impossible happens. And sometimes it feels like um, finding some way forward, the impossible has to happen. But then I think about this question, like what would love do? And and something opens up. So um, I'm very grateful. I just remember a real shift in the, in the tone and the conversation and a big feeling of relief. Um, that I think that question helped make possible. And I think especially with questions of climate crisis, the, you know, there can be a tendency to think the very austere, self-sacrificing uh, kind of approach to it and ways that can be very depressing for a person. And I think you know, that to bring in love into it, I think was helpful to shift away from austerity, this person. You know, I think about, you know, Bell Hooks has some books on love and centering love and social justice work. And I read those early on, like in age 20. And uh, there's something about her writing that it just, I had never heard anybody write like that before and write so personally and so fluidly about love. the question stem of uh how would you come to know that i just like really i feel i just feel like sourcing knowledge and locating it in experience and moments and just is really useful i think it kind of uh, allows a little space from our ideas in a way that's helpful and can also like trace lineage in ways that's can encourage connection and the linking of lives in various ways so yeah, they, that question of how did you come to know that is one that I, it's pretty present. From men's group, like working with men who uh, are offenders of violence, to men who are survivors of violence, to all other contexts too. I just use those two, that gender to <laughs> craft a spectrum. <laughs> but yeah. Thanks, Navita. First, I just want to say I love the way you called it a STEM like that an idea could, st- I, I took it as an idea could, a, a question stem as you're talking about it, and maybe you could say a little bit more, could could be, could give rise to to so much more, like you're saying in terms of bases of knowledge, bases of experience. Um, so, so thanks for calling it that. And I don't know if there's anything else that you can say about your ideas about how, holding something as a stem um, generally and, and how that helps your work, supports it, informs it. It's my attempt at staying really connected to context because I think a, the idea of a question stem, like you're saying, allows for it to be located in its usefulness, not because it should be asked or because it's always a positive-leaning or negative-leaning question. And that's why I was kind of speaking about men who have offended to men who are survivors because with the men who, who've caused some harm in their lives... Um, I want to know about how they came to know about violence, 
right? It's a very different color than someone who's talking about how they came to learn how to, like earlier, parent their kids and how to love their kids. And I might say, how did you come to know that, right? So the direction it's heading is very different, but it's housed in a, in a similar ethic. No, other than I like just really appreciate the STEM. Like it just, uh, it's very like simple. It's it's one that um, I think is very like honoring to the person in a way. And uh, at least for me, <laughs> you know, there's some things, sometimes we skip things, you know, and I just think that that's such a useful space to to be in for a while until you go on to something else. So just thank you for bringing that forward, man. Yeah, and appreciating like the real questions that we all ask people regularly that seem to fit in a lot of situations that someone listening could use in their practice. It feels really like uh, versatile and helpful. So thank you. Anything else you want to say? Uh, really briefly, I'm just appreciating that um, we may be up against the times hegemony of thought in many ways from people situated in different identities and people coming in with things that feel like they're held as truths. And then those things can take up a lot of space and depending on the person speaking and what's being spoken. I like your question as well as a respectful way to get somebody to unpack something that's ma being made as a truth claim so that everyone can understand where that comes from in a way that doesn't seem like it's challenging the person speaking it, but instead asking them to unpack a little bit more about how that informs who they are and why they're trafficking and bringing those beliefs into the world in whatever context they're talking about. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, that. Thank you. We'll, we'll keep it going around the horn here. Mine, I guess, is a, is a shorter question too, I guess, in a way. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking about someone again who was mandated to kind of come see me. But I found that this question kind of opened some things up and he was kind of going through transitioning of families. Like he was in a divorce in a, in a period of a divorce and then dating someone else, kind of having some struggles with his kids, a question or STEM, I'll get to it that I think opened up a lot for us was what, you know, imagine down the line, your kids are talking about you and talking about this time, you know, what, what story would you want them to share about you as a dad during this time? And God just it really opened up a lot from there. And it kind of gave us like an anchor of who he wants to be during this. Here he is. He has all these lives, people he's going into, people he's, you know, staying with, but, but not being in the same house. So there was a lot of like relational transition so to speak and so how does he want to show up really is the is the best is the best way to put it and what it and that that kind of connected us to that with that with that story question and sometimes I really fumble over the miracle question I'm not like a great miracle question person <laughs> so I tried finding other simpler ways where people could could talk about what they what they prefer and I found that this this story question tends and it's not a new narrative question at all but it tends to elicit so much more in the engagements I have with people than 
than kind of the miracle question. I just find it to be like a sweeter spot almost in those early stages of us anchoring in something. I can imagine as a parent liking that space to be opened up about what you hope your child says about you about this time to be able to stop and reflect on that and imagine the future and imagine what they'd hope they say about you as a parent and sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a lot of time for those kind of reflections I can see how that could be helpful and, and meaningful it's fun being lumped into the parents because it feels like it does Mike a disservice because he's been doing it much harder and longer than I have but yeah me and Mike know some stuff um but I will say uh it's I love that question it's one that feels really important in some of the domestic violence work I do you know it's it's really easy to talk about the the challenges or the sadness or disadvantages whatever you want to call it of kids being involved in domestic violence stuff but one of the benefits generally speaking very generally is the ways that like bringing in that question helps parents orient to what they're doing a little bit more clearly especially when they're like caught up in like how to hurt the other bringing in like what are your kids seeing of you right now is a useful snapback to preferred practices and ethics and stances as a parent like yeah you're successfully getting back at your partner and your kids are also watching you hurt their mom or dad what does that mean thanks tom um i'm grateful grateful for this question and um Adding on to what Navid said, I'll only say that um, I can imagine it being really helpful um, as minds sometimes want to loop in different ways, but loop as a metaphor for staying out of the present and rooted in some past memories and repetition of past stories that aren't always helpful or ever helpful. Um, you know, I think Thich Nhat Hanh has called this like the prison of the past, where we just keep ourselves stuck in a place that's wholly unhelpful. Um, and that this, in the way that you've talked about it, feels um, like a possibility for liberation, um, if nothing else, in, into this present moment to recall why someone is dear to another in their home, in their family, in their parenting, and to come back to here for what's possible now. So I'm grateful, really grateful. So actually, this is my second question, but I, I had wanted to say before even starting that um, th there's something about a way, it, well, first of all, adding that something that you'd said about being informed by this context, like um, being here in a chaparral plain, you know, about 40 miles east of the Pacific Ocean at elevation with some nature that just seems to constantly sh reveal I'm odd and we'll tie in a little bit to the question that I'm going to say. But I also wanted to say, too, that I'm really feeling informed by someone who's just on my heart right now, who's taking over a lot of the administrative and leadership stuff at Narrative Therapy Initiatives in Boston, Greg Bodine. Uh, Greg recently wrote an, an email newsletter um, about ways of speaking in certainty versus ways of offering in tentativeness and that there can be a difference in um, 
some ways of coming at any conversation, the difference that our stance might make, um, depending on how we're approaching it with our language, our tone. And so there's something about when I'm with Greg that I'm remembering, um, because there's always a temptation being a male-bodied, male-minded person of just like moving into, let me tell you something that holding Greg with me helps me to resist. Before I say this question, I, I want to say to some of the questions that have been informing me lately, because there's some questions that um, have just been important, like with the moon, with the moon waning right now and bright as it was last night, my wife Rocio asked me what I wanted to give up in my life and to give it to Grandmother Moon. And I was appreciative for that question. My daughter Elena um, and my daughter Lily, my children, moving from daughter to children said to me um what's this connected to dad like dad what what's this connected to and we'll sometimes play a game about what what's this connected to like like there's a tree right here and we might talk about what the tree is connected to and the root system and the the different networks in the ground and so some questions about connection also a piece with um a friend through a group that i run a friend and a member of a group that i run not a client group but a uh, sort of a more social group that's um, again involved with planetary crisis and also um, the work that reconnects Francisco Ryan King's son whose name I'm blanking out on right now um, on Earth Day Francisco described what the earth meant to him as a father and when he got done with this description of the earth kind of as this nurturer and this caretaker of us um, his son said to him what can we bring the earth um, and I just, I like repeating some of these questions because they feel very, very important and connected to me for how, um, w why I want to keep going. Um, there's also one last one too, and it's questions that were asked under some duress. I was sleeping on an island uh, with Ron Estes and we're asking each other questions about the position of stars in the sky and where stars are oriented and what they're named. And um, the duress part is secondary, but like, Asking people about the names of things so that they don't get forgotten, I think, is just really important to me, too. I sometimes think that it's comfortable to ask questions when we're comfortable, but if we're under duress, like, how do we get those questions off, too? Um, so I'm thinking about that. And I'll just say my question is some, is just a, a brief background about it. There's a chapter in uh, Playful Approaches to Serious Problems, a book by David Epstein, Jenny Freeman, and Dean Lovowitz. And there's a chapter in there where David Epstein talks about working with a youth who's really having a hard time holding food down. And it looks like he's going to need a permanent feeding tube. And there's something about his connection to a puppy that makes a huge difference in his life. And David asks him some careful questions about that. And a follow-up paper that you can read on narrativeapproaches.com in the Narrative Therapy Archive is There's Always a Puppy and Sometimes a Bunny Too by Tom Stone Carlson. Um, I'm going to get her name wrong. Emily Cortrio and Jill Friedman. And the follow-up paper to me was interesting because Tom and company were interested in asking David, like, how is it that you find these symbols relationships that people connect with and sort of grab onto that make this huge difference in their life in this case it was like the difference between this boy needing a surgical intervention or not and that there's some lasting meaningful importance to these ways that david asks about them and um, I, I think in the paper tom asks like what if there's no puppy and david 
says something like, there's always a puppy. And uh, Tom talks about doing this work where there was a bunny that was significant in the client's life. And so I'm getting at this because I'm thinking about how people relate to their more than human connections and more than human surroundings. And why when faced with really difficult problems, this can make all the difference. The question goes something like, with with respect to this problem, is is there an animal that you most connect to when this problem is at its most difficult? People will sometimes look at me quizzically, and then the response that I most often get is like this change in face and then like a smile, and then people come out with an animal. And then I'll ask them about the part of them that, that most resonates in terms of that that animal's presence physiologically for them. Like I've had people talk about a lion's heart, I've had people talk about being able to swim like aquatic animals, people being able to get small in places, small in places like iguanas and, and lizards. And the variety of answers I get from people is fascinating as far as like what they would do if, that, if the spirit of that animal were with them. And then back to the physiological piece, like the part of them that that feels most embodied. Yeah, if I can say one other thing, like, I then want to find out from people about how that relates to connection with the planet and love for the planet more generally when they have this relationship to other than human um, presences. And I've just found this work nothing short of fascinating, especially in situations where people are reflecting on difficult situations they're in or difficult situations that they've been in, but they're really facing great difficulty with making sense of their response and what was happening then even though it's long past. Um, so the paper is, um, there's always a puppy and sometimes a bunny. I like, maybe this question is something like, there's always an animal and sometimes the whole planet. Like the, there, there's always this connection and just trusting that all of us have this connection to more than human relations that we carry, all of us. So how's that for a concise question, Will? Well, thank you for bringing in the non-human, more than human relationships. I've talked about this quote from Kenneth Gergen multiple times in this podcast. You know, he said, therapy tends to privilege the individual rather than the set of relationships in which that individual lives. And sometimes when we talk about relationships, we're often thinking about human relationships. And there's so much uh, possibility with non-human, more than human relationships. If I have your question right, it was, well, can you can you say it again? Yeah, <laughs> sure. It's really short. Um, <laughs> what's the animal that you connect with when when this problem is is most impactful in your life? Well, it really takes me to this imaginative place, a place of images, a place of animals, a place of you know my dog, growing up and remembering those images and that relationship and opening up to a lot more relationships than just a human. I'm appreciating that. I, I like this question, Mike, because it wasn't what I was expecting <laughs> you to say or ask. I can imagine the fun this question brings kind of forward in a session where it can go. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing it. I'm just, just wondering like how I can use it in a way or how, how what kind of when to use it, how to use it. What a way to take us out of kind of the obstacle or whatever that people come in to see us with. What a, what a fun way to kind of take us to shift out. 
I just love it where that question can can take probably someone. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm liking it too. Uh, I feel like it just really exposes the kind of the color of your soul and the timbre of your ethics in the question in some ways. So I I like I like knowing you're out there asking people questions like that and letting them be in relationship with you. Yeah, I I I just hold some beliefs close that um, when I'm in difficult ways, when clients are in difficult ways, there there are, there are some ways of thinking about more than human relationships that are very different from the from the human ones, and and the storing of those could have some profound effects. Is my hope, and and if there's a last piece, because I keep bringing it up about the extinction piece, this mass extinction piece, like um, a restoring of and a love for those relationships, I think leads to a restoring of a love for this context that is us. Like I wouldn't be here without the, the sustenance of this air I'm breathing, the clean air that I'm breathing, the water that I'm drinking, um, I, I, the sun that rose this morning. So uh, there's just some, there's something about the connectedness to um, to planet that I'm, I, I'm imagining all of this hopefully leads back to um, as we come into some questions about how we exist in some increasingly fraught situations on the planet. So th that's just another background hope for helping to create some stories that give people ideas about how to be in, in some difficult times. So well, let's wrap up here and we'll do some closing words. Uh, thank you, Nabid Zamani, Tom, Michael Giancola uh, for sharing this time together and your thoughts and your questions. And uh, I feel enriched by all the questions and motivated to make a list. Try them out myself. Thank you all very much. And uh, if you have any closing words, I'll, I'll pass that around the circle. Thanks, Will, for this. Wishing you an of a lifetime of joy and pleasure and fun. And access to people and questions and tough moments yeah thanks will for putting this together this is a celebratory time for you you know it's been been fun to kind of be a uh, on the sideline of you and ava i remember when you first were getting together and it was uh it was really cool and i i hope you know you guys just have you celebrate this time because it's, it's like a special time so but thank you for doing this too because it's a question I think that circulates through so many people's heads of okay what what's out there you know like sometimes like questions sort of not get stale but but they have a way of sort of like I need some new new stuff I need to I need to try some new things that that fit with me and so I think that this this forum kind of can present that for people. It's, it has for me, at least. I'm so grateful for this time. Thank you, three of you. Thank you so much, Will. Congratulations. When I'm with you, um, when I'm with you and Ava, um, there's a lightness to it. There's a lightness to it. And um, especially when you guys are performing, uh, there's, there's something to that that... Um, there's no words, so I won't even try. Thank you for, for both of you being you, and I'm always learning 
right next to you. I'm very, very grateful. Um, and I want to say two things really briefly, briefly, briefly. Um, you've always come at this work with an ethic of knowing the people who are most in the margins and finding out where they are in the room or the setting or the conference and approaching them and meeting them and finding out about who they are. That's always been something you've been really explicit about. And you've always wondered in a group who's spoken the least or not at all, which is never me. <laughs> but but you're, you're always wondering about that and always asking that. Many people are thinking it, but you're always asking that. Those are two ethics that I've always known you in the now almost decade we know each other, to explicitly make a part of your work in community. And I love watching you work in community. It's a, and it's a privilege to be invited to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. again to Mike Giancola, Tom, and Naveed Zamani. Uh, we went on that weekend to play uh, some games of Koob, cross country, bocce ball, we played music around the campfire, went for a pretty incredible hike up a mountain. And it was a very special weekend. All the good guitar music you hear uh, in this episode was played by myself, and uh, thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at uh, www.sherwin at gmail.com for any uh, comments or questions. Thank you. <laughs>